fact, if I were to turn my latest book into a series of videos, then YouTube would have them removed. Believe me, I have tried. I would be given strikes. I'd eventually have my channel taken down. There are some investigations which the Ministry of Truth will not tolerate. And subjects like the true cause of polio and what actually happened, or rather, did not happen in Auschwitz, are some of them. Exile to Aftermath continues my series on intel psyops and hoaxes throughout the decades. It is obviously a blacklisted read. Other topics covered in here is my series on the atomic bomb hoax, as well as the Black Dahlia murder hoax. I've been at this for a long time now, and I do work very hard at it, turning out new content each and every week on my website, The Unexpected Cosmology. Everything I put out is for free. One of the ways that you can support my ministry is by visiting Sacred Word Publishing and purchasing any one of my books. The Hidden Hand of Camelot and It's Only Murder If They're Dead follows the intel psyops and hoaxes of the 60s, while The Angel She Desires unveils my research into subjects like Serpent Seed and The Only Begotten Daughter of Elohim. Also, please consider leaving a review. I do appreciate your support. Shalom. Once again, this is going to be a little bit of a different video than I normally put out there on YouTube. I've explained before that my work is kind of fractured. I have my stuff on YouTube, which is a lot of biblical stuff. And then I put a lot of emphasis on my website, The Unexpected Cosmology, on hoaxes and the like. I love researching, writing hoaxes. And unfortunately, a lot of that stuff, I can't get away with putting it on YouTube. I get strikes. My channel gets taken down. I've said this before, but I'm always on the lookout now for articles that I can read off where I think I can get away with it. Uh, there's some big channels out there where they talk about stuff. I'm like, I don't understand how they get away with it because if I even spoke in codes to what they're talking about, my video would get taken down and I'd get a strike. So the walrus was Paul. Or I should say that's the name of the paper, but the Paul is dead conspiracy is probably one of the oldest conspiracies, the longest lasting conspiracies that are still being talked about right up there with the JFK assassination. And uh, as many of you know, who have been looking into the Paul is dead rumors, it started while the Beatles were still a band. Right around the time they were breaking up. I think it started maybe talks in 67, 68. By 69 and 70, it was really taking off. And you guys will see for yourself that I feel like I have a fresh take on this. I'm not just trying to spin things uh, in ways that, you know, just to be different. I actually am writing this stuff because I feel I have some information to contribute that I think is is unique. And I... In those regards, I think a lot of the Paul is dead, uh, the classically trained crowd is <laughs> probably going to be a little upset at me because, uh, well, you'll see in a second what I'm talking about. 
And let's just get right into it. This is called The Walrus Was Paul. It was first published on, oh, look at that, May 14th, 2020. So about two and a, over two years now. And then the most recent draft was this April. Admit it. You probably only agreed to read this paper because you're wondering if I believe Paul McCartney is alive or dead. I'm only two sentences in and already you're accusing me of beating around the bush. Hop to it, Noel. How you feel about me as a conspiracy realist or whatever awaits in my response, which I'm apparently slow in getting at. What if I told you that John Lennon is still alive? Oh, John Lennon is most certainly still alive, by my estimation. I'd even go so far as to say it's a missing ingredient to the Paul is dead controversy. The question you will be asking yourself before this is over is if Lennon actually realizes it yet or not. The Paul is dead rumor remains one of the oldest conspiracies still readily available or discussed among theorists today, right up there with the JFK assassination. And no, I haven't arrived to have you open your mouth and say, ah, while I spoon feed the same dribble. As of this publication, the original Paul McCartney is getting along in his years but he is still very much alive, like Lennon. That's not to say everyone who subscribes to the Paul is Dead conspiracy is outright wrong. Something is clearly off about Paul McCartney. Intel planted a trail of breadcrumbs long ago, and they're worth following. The problem everyone is having is they often seem to confuse the esoteric with the exoteric. Paul McCartney really did die, but only symbolically. The purpose of this paper is to show you how and why. The foundation for the Paul is Dead argument begins like this. On the early hours of Wednesday, November 19, 1966, a vicious fight between Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr ended with McCartney storming out of the studio and driving off in his Austin Healey. Along the way, he picked up a hitchhiker. Her name was Rita. Neither made it home. Paul McCartney of Liverpool was decapitated. Now, that's a very popular uh, theory. There's been a couple of other, others I've read, but that seems to be the, the main, uh, the brunt of it. During the sunset of the 60s, Paul's gruesome death was the sort of rumor which might be spread among subscribers of the Back Alley Conspirator newsletters or by gleaning the latest gossip on the marijuana train. I don't say any of this to discredit the fact. Indeed, I've pondered over the Beatles' subliminal messaging for years. I've actually been trying to figure out if I can add anything new to the discussion. Well, I believe I can. And as already stated, it involves John Lennon. Part of the equation is something called a disassociative identity disorder, which describes Lennon well. Mind you, I am not a doctor. The media, however, tells us the Beatle likely struggled his entire life with mental illness, DID in particular. Someone with DID has multiple distinct personalities, each of whom control that person's behavior. It is usually caused by po uh, past trauma, but you and I know this has something and probably everything to do with the MK Ultra program. It certainly does not take a leap of imagination by any means to finger Yoko Ono as his handler. I'm certainly not the first to bring that up. 
Rock musicians need government spooks like a cocaine addict needs his dealer. She was probably his leash bearer from the very beginning. Yoko Ono breaking up the Beatles is only a half-truth when, in fact, the most obvious conclusion to make is that the Beatles were the product of Intel. Indeed, it was the boys down at the lab which broke up the Beatles. And seriously, like the more I, I look into the Beatles and ponder them, there's no possible way those guys were organic. That, like, there's no possible way those four guys did what they did on their own. I mean, it's pretty obvious by this point. You'd have to be asleep while listening to Yoko Ono's orgasmic-induced war chants not to notice. Who set Lennon up with Yoko's assistant, Mei Pang? Yoko did. It was Yoko who sent him home to Pang's apartment, advising that she bed with him. It was her suggestion that Pang move into the Dakota while she was away in Chicago for a feminist convention. And when Lennon and Pang moved to Los Angeles together, Yoko again. I haven't the faintest clue which of Lennon's split personalities became a born-again believer in 1977, but Yoko put a stop to that one. Yoko was pulling the strings all along. Another common observation is that Yoko seemed much happier after Lennon's death. She paraded her lover, Sam Havat... I can't even pronounce that. Havatoy around New York, dressed in Lennon's old clothes, and then exploited his memory for her own gain. She did that for decades. She even successfully rewrote the Beatles' mythology to some extent, transforming Lennon into the musical wizard while McCartney wore the Dunes cap. At this point in my research, I'm not even entirely positive that Lennon was in on his own faked death when Mark David Chapman pulled the trigger in front of the Dakota building in December of 1980. By the, for the record, that was the month I was born. Mark Stacer may not have been born that very moment where disassociative identity disorder is concerned, but it is also not beyond the realm of possibilities that Lennon's doppelganger took over his psyche while Chapman sat down to read Catcher in the Rye, or soon thereafter. Yoko Ono was a wizard of performance art, and this just may prove to be her greatest act of witchery yet. Who is that man in the picture? We are told Mark Stacer. Looks an awful lot, lot like Lennon, don't he? He's a spitting image, if ever I've seen one. That's why I'm going out on a limb and claiming that Mark Stacer is one of Lennon's personalities, which means John Lennon, the person, is still very much alive. Just know that a death certificate is representative of a fictitious person. More specifically, a legal entity which has been terminated. A death certificate has little to do with a flesh and blood person. Therefore, it would be correct to say that corporate linen is very much dead while Mark Stacer indeed lives. And at any rate, the question we are supposed to be asking is if Mark Stacer even knows he is John Lennon or in the very least, was at one time. Stacer's introduction to the world coincided with a low-budget indie Canadian mockumentary titled Let Him Be. Its story revolves around a young man who discovers a Super 8 camera with a home movie still inside. Its contents involve a children's birthday party and someone singing and playing guitar who has an uncanny resemblance to you-know-who. She soon sets out in search of Lennon's doppelganger. 
Intel screwed up big time. They had probably intended to shove the real John Lennon in our face and beckon us to deny that reality so as to help the cognitive dissonance sink even deeper down. When in fact, too many people witnessed a film about, about a man playing someone who was advertised to us as John Lennon and then concluded, wait a second, I think he is John Lennon. It's why the film was quietly released in 2009, nearly 30 years after John Lennon's assassination, and then pulled from theaters and festivals almost immediately afterwards. Even the professional actors who appear in the film do not identify their involvement on IMDb pages. But even before that, Peter McNamee, uh, its director, received telefilm funding despite having no previous track record in the directing department. I'll say it again. Intel slips up at times, and in the decade since, they've practically scrubbed it from the internet. I mean, seriously, try to track down this movie. The actor playing John Lennon, of course, is Mark Stacer. Only in the movie, and as an added dimension, he goes by the name of Lennon impersonator Noel Snow, reminding us once again of Lennon's disassociative identity disorder. For the record, the real Mark Stacer is a lifelong imitator of John Lennon. Just as Snow is in the movie, he looks exactly like Lennon. Same eyes, same nose, same ears, same chin, same teeth, same lips, same fingers. Even the mole under his right eye is identical. Everything about him is an exact and perfect match. Though apparently born and raised in Michigan, his American is spotty while his Liverpool accent is spot on, even while singing. And by the way, you can actually see videos of him singing out there on YouTube and see him in interviews and so on and so forth. Track down a copy and you will also find that it's difficult getting a director shot of Stacer in practically any scene. As if director Peter McNamee, I think that's how you pronounce the name, McNamee, went to great lengths to camouflage him. Why would Mark Stacer need camouflaged? Because he is in every sense of the word the man he is attempting to impersonate, John Lennon. Some will argue that Mark Stacer knows he is John Lennon and only roughhousing us up a bit. But I don't see it that way. John Lennon may have been a trickster, mythologically speaking, but actors filled the frame of the MK Ultra program, and Lennon is one such casualty. Reader's discretion. I cannot pretend to fully comprehend the intricate inner workings of this split psyche fluttering around in the soul of a monarch butterfly. What I am suggesting, however, is that the psyche of John Lennon was murdered, whereas any number of his MK Ultra personalities remained. The padded identity of Noel Snow plays into my theory. Mark Stacer is no longer actor John Lennon, just as Noel Snow is no longer actor Mark Stacer in the movie. Stacer can only induce visions of grandeur and pretend to be John Lennon. He can prove one hell of a good John Lennon, but at the end of the day, John Lennon, the legal entity, is dead, and he will always thusly be Mark Stacer. The very name, Noel Snow, once again plays into the split psyche scenario. It's an anagram. Look, at, look to the bottom left corner of the John Lennon and Yoko Ono double fantasy LP released in 1980. What do you see? Lenono music. Noel Snow contains all the same letters, Lenono, but with an added W. 
Noel Snow is none other than the Lennon Ono record label. At one point in the movie, Noel Snow is seen in his recording studio with an odd equipment for a small-time Lennon impersonator. An AKI uh, GX635D reel-to-reel with six VUs, vintage mixing consoles, as well as an extremely rare uh, Krumar Roadrunner 2 keyboard, circa 1980. That's John Lennon's recording equipment, oddly enough. It's there to help serve the anagram. With Let Him Be, we are given one anomaly after another. Even its very title is an interesting turn of phrase. Get it? Let him be. Let who be exactly? I would be doing you a disservice if I neglected to add that Mark Stacer playing Noel Snow doesn't simply perform Lennon on par. He writes his own songs too, which you can listen to online. And they're purely Lennon songs. Songs like Still Here I Am sound, sound like Lennon, all right. A broken down Lennon who wishes the past would simply leave him alone. Out of sight, out of mind. Those are some of the lyrics. His next song, I Was There, eerily details the moment when David Chapman entered his life. Well, how very strange. Point is, they're entirely, their point is, they're songs entirely about Lennon himself. Here is a sample of the song lyrics Let's have the truth and lose the lies. Are you listening, FBI? There we go with the FBI narrative again. If Lennon truly did believe the Nixon administration was after him, wiretapping his phone calls and all that, as bio biographical claims insist, then it was only so that the MK Ultra slave could taste the psychodrama. In turn, Lennon might struggle to stay alive and defeat his handler, thereby succeeding in splitting his psyche. Mark Stacer. Which is the same thing as saying his controller has won. The MK Ultra program is a gripe, ain't it? Take another look at Mark Stacer sitting alone in a dark room and tell me that's not John Lennon. An aged Mark Stacer desperately attempting to look like the man he is impersonating in the final hours before an assassination ceremony. But John Lennon, nonetheless. Here are a few more of Mark Stacer's lyrics to chew on. I am who I once... Oh, I am who I was once. I am as you see. You make it make sense now, Mark Stacer. At this very moment, you're probably wondering why you just scrolled past a picture of the Doors frontman, J Jim, not John Moore, Jim Morrison, when in fact we're supposed to be returning to the subject of Billy Shears, a.k.a. William Campbell. Noel's beating around the bush again, never can answer a direct question. See, we've established by this point that Lennon is Stacer, at least in my mind, I have. But if you've been reading this book, in this article, in chronological article, then you understand full well that Morrison was pimped out by his father. This may require more reading. One of, the, one of these days, I half expect to receive a link to some clip from the Channel 9 Evening News in Ann Arbor or Albuquerque or some obscure college town. The segment I'm imagining is pulled from a surviving VHS recording during the sleepy hours of 2002, when post-September 11th propaganda went into hyper-overdrive and our slave masters needed the cognitive dissonance to really dig in. It devotes an entire minute to detailing some old fat man who looks exactly like Santa Claus, but on second glance, 
Jim Morrison, come to think of it, everything about him screams the door's leading man. Only he goes now by two first names, Fred Todd or Corey Roger. Or if Intel was feeling especially frisky, Morris Jim. Understand the segment isn't about Fred Todd. No, it's about the popularity of poetry reading night at Fact and Fiction, an independent bookstore only a block or two from the local university. But as the story unfolds, we hear the store owner talk about Fred Todd's obsession with poetry. He's been arriving to Poetry Reading Night every Wednesday for 10 years, never missing a beat. And everyone who works in the bookstore knows it. We hear a lyric or two from Fred Todd's work. It involves an Indian and a snake deity. He delivers a line like a spiritual shaman. We further learn that he's obsessed with singing songs from the doors and come to think of it, they're the only songs he knows. Exactly. Jim Morrison lives, according to my scenario. Sure, Fred Todd and the Channel 9 Evening News entire segment is only a figment of my imagination. But hang with me here, because there's a point to this. Need I remind you that this is precisely what the CIA would do? If you're still hung up on the fact that I invented a scenario whereas an old fuddy-duddy showed up in the media in 2002 right after the latest episode of Jeopardy, then you're failing to recognize the reality of the ongoing PSYOP. It's spooks who not only run the independent bookstores, they're also responsible for releasing it onto the YouTube 15 years later. For all we know, the bookstores never actually existed, and the segment failed to run. Also, that Jim Morrison poster you hung up over your bed as an emblem of free thinking was purchased at your local shopping mall because spooks ensured a poster stand should sell their products. Freddie Mercury, Elvis Presley, Tupac Shakur, Marilyn Monroe, Steve McQueen, JFK, Prince, and so on. Halfway between the glorified bra boutique and the food court. Oh, so rock and roll was an Intel psyop. But you knew that already. I take it everyone is familiar with the Abbey Road cover. Yes, I mean, who isn't? John the Angel, Ringo the Minister, Paul the Barefooted Dead Soul, George the Gravedigger. No conversation in the Paul is Dead psyop is complete without it. The far more stunning evidence, however, isn't the masterful art piece engraved seemingly effortlessly on a 1969 LP, but George Harrison's own admission in his first solo album, All Things Must Pass, released in 1970. The song is titled, It's Johnny's Birthday, and just so we're clear, he's speaking about John Lennon, more specifically, Lennon's birthday. Now, now Anton LaVey, I know, said birthdays are, quote, the highest of all holidays in the satanic religion, unquote. And he's absolutely correct about that. If the term satanic seems too superficial or mainstream for you, and it is, then just replace it with the word mystery, as in the Babylonian mystery religion. I am reminded of a paper I wrote which pulled just about everyone's panties in a twist, and the brunt of it is this. Birthday celebrations ultimately originated in the mystery religions because the esoteric point to the divine hieroglyph is the neophyte coming to the knowledge that he is also divine. And so naturally, he must come to worship the Elohim within, the divine within. The ancient world of Egypt, Greece, Rome, Babylon, and Persia celebrated the birthdays of divine beings and kings. If birthdays became popular for the common man, it's probably only because Plato's role was to initiate everyone into the mystery religions via the immortal soul doctrine. Hence, 
Everyone was now immortal by their own intellect know-how and disciplinary willpower, if they wanted to be. Birthdays let the worship of the self commence. Just so we're clear, LeVay was a spook. A dress-up mannequin in the storefront window display. A Langley operation. And also a nerd. So you can only imagine my sigh when I quote his fuller disclosure on the birthday celebration, which can be found in the Satanic Bible, and it goes as follows. The highest of all holidays in the Satanic religion is the date of one's own birthday. This is in direct contradiction to the holy of holy days of other religions, which deify a particular god who has been created in an anthropomorphic form of their own image, thereby showing that the ego is not really buried. The Satanist feels, why not really be honest, and if you are going to create a god in your image, why not create the god, that god as yourself? Every man is a god if he chooses to recognize himself as one. So the Satanist celebrates his own birthday as the most important holiday of the year. After all, aren't you happier about the fact that you were born than you are about the birth of someone you have never even met? Or for that matter, aside from religious holidays, why pay higher tribute to the birthday of a president or to a date in history than we do to the day we were brought into the greatest of all worlds? Despite the fact that some of us may not have been wanted, or at least we're not particularly planned, we're glad, even if no one else is, that we're here. You should give yourself a pat on the back, buy yourself whatever you want, treat yourself like a king or God that you are, and generally celebrate your birthday with as much pomp and ceremony as possible. Harrison chose a song deifying John Lennon on the highest of holy days to execute his uh, thelmic craft. His thelmic craft. Oh, haven't you heard? Aleister Crowley is another important puzzle piece to the Paula's Dead narrative. Hang with me here because we're essentially dealing with a split psyche and the beast himself, Master, Master Crowley, did appear on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. First released in 1913, Magic Book 4 is widely considered to be occultist Aleister Crowley's magnum opus. In it, Crowley ins insisted that his disciples, quote, train himself to think backwards by external means, unquote. He was furthermore instructed to write and talk backwards, but also to listen to phonograph records reversed. We have a word for that, backtracking. And through this, and though this may be argued by some, nobody backtracked quite like the Beatles. The Beatles had already sung about the birthday celebration on their 1968 White Album, Practically everything McCartney wrote was garbage, according to Lennon, of which birthday was no exception. On the same album, John even went so far as to cast Paul in the role of a Lewis Carroll figure. The song was titled Glass Onion, and the walrus, as you already know, was Paul. And through the looking glass, the walrus was an imposter, coercing the oysters into his belly. The comparison, the comparison seems harsh, but the Beatles were all about manipulation from the very beginning. Media manipulation among the gullible masses who placed their trust in a product. Corporate manipulation of its own eager shoppers. Standing outside in the cold and waiting for its doors to open. The Beatles were both media and corporate, and they still are. They're not even hiding that fact anymore. They manipulated their own fans, and everybody loves them for it. In large part, they were a major contributor to the birth of the teenager. 
which has already been covered in a past paper. In the happenstance that you need a refresher, because who's actually read that? It, <laughs> it had to do with screaming. Also, wet seats. Yeah, it took a janitor to clean them, that mess up. Total emotional manipulation. I should probably go back and read that paper someday because it was really good. Before you tell me that Beatles publicist Derek Taylor or their manager Brian Epstein couldn't have possibly hired the girls needed to scream their lungs out, need I remind you that Frank Sinatra's publicist George Evans did indeed hire girls in the front row because screaming was not a thing in the 1940s. It worked for Sinatra. Presley, too. Women everywhere fed off that energy. The Ed Sullivan Show was broadcast into nearly every television in America. The corporate media essentially created a groundswell with sub-psychodramas, whereas somebody would get married, and all the girls who wanted Paul or Ringo or John fill in the blank would have their imagined boyfriend snatched away from them, and the depression would set in. Even the Beatles' breakup played into the psychodrama. It is so ironic that John Lennon officially broke up the Beatles while staying at the Polynesian Resort in Walt Disney World, literally staring at the Magic Kingdom. Walt Disney World has already been covered elsewhere as a CIA operation, another psychodrama. The manipulation of their own listeners' emotions would later be played out by Lennon and McCartney's War of Words, particularly on their early solo albums. And it's so obviously mimicking the sort of abusive relationship one might find among the MK Ultra slave with his handler. Many insist that John was attempting to expose an imposter paw, but I see the situation in reverse. The abusive controller relationship may have been Paul's design the entire time. And anyways, the psyop played out on the subconscious level is mass engineering on everyone. Anywho, we're still on the topic of it's Johnny's birthday. I tended to wander there in my thoughts. The lyrics go something as follows. And we would like to wish him all the very best. Backtrack that on the turntable, and this is what we're left with. He never wore his shoes. We all know he was dead. And you can, of course, listen to that yourself on, on YouTube. I ask you to pause here and attempt to grasp what Harrison is ultimately saying. By drawing out attention to the cover of Abbey Road, he's not simply talking backwards. He's walking backwards, too. That's precisely what an adept of Thelma is instructed to do. And I know what you might possibly already be thinking. The Beatles didn't study rigorously to become practitioners of Thelma magic simply to reach out to backmasking potheads and confess that their dear friend has died as if they were being held hostage and couldn't say anything through the media. There's a reason why John and Paul's two posthumous Beatles albums, a catalog of A-side and B-side singles, were called Past Masters. In Freemason terms, they had achieved their status as grand wizards. Musicians covet the Beatles. It's not simply because they want to become a Beatle, historically speaking. They want to cast the sort of spell on the world which the Beatles seem to effortlessly achieve. If you're still following, then my Paul is dead theory seems to line up with nearly everything else I've been researching and it goes something, something as follows. During an undisclosed period of the 60s, Paul McCartney died, sort of. The Beatles then replaced him with Billy Shears, a.k.a. William Campbell. If you recall, Billy Shears had a heavy hand in pinning the Sgt. Pepper album. 
Then again, like Lennon, Paul McCartney never really died, genetically speaking. And we're talking merely on a biological level. That's because William Campbell is McCartney. Oh, so the walrus was Paul. Perhaps the earliest reference I can find to the Paul is Dead narrative involves the cover to the Beatles' Yesterday and Today LP, which, as you might recall, replace a far more blatant baby-murdering Moloch cover. Both worship death. I mean, how creepy is that? The second did so, however, in a far more deviously subtle way. They put McCartney in something resembling a coffin. Babies sacrificing as a means of immortalization, immortalizing the infant soul can be traced back to Homeric literature. Then again, burying the mortal initiate cries out Templar shrouds, a practice which still dominates Freemasonry, as well as the coffins of skull and bones, a rite that takes us back to the mummies of Egypt via the mysteries of Isis. It's literally in the title, Yesterday and Today. You will tell me this is proof that Paul McCartney is dead. Wrong. Yesterday and Today was released in June of 1966. Yes, the cover was replaced, but it was quickly done and Paul McCartney would not be decapitated until November 16th, nearly half a year later. Some will move McCartney's mortal wound a month or so earlier, but either way, Yesterday and Today pre-exists every purported death date. The swap is right before our eyes. Paul McCartney to William Campbell, with Campbell playing the part of Grandmaster uh, de Molay, or uh, Jacques de Molay. I can never pronounce the French. And showing us the way. The man in the Shroud of Turin is the Holy Grail, you see. That's controversial right there. I don't know how I feel about that anymore. I'm kind of looking at the Shroud in a new way now, but whatever. That's a whole side topic. The, the Freemasons are all about burying themselves in shrouds, skull and bow, and so on and so forth. If it's a November 19th ceremony you're after, however, then Strawberry Fields Forever would be the first outing for Paul's replacement, wherein all members of the Fab Four are present together, and it doesn't disappoint. At the end of the song, John Lennon appears to be singing, I Buried Paul. Lennon later claimed in interviews that he was attempting to pronounce cranberry sauce. Sure but that's not what most of us hear. His attempts at dismissing such blatant death imagery throughout their entire catalog is half-assed and never heartfelt. Look at me, look at the lyrics here to the song. Let me take you down because I'm going to strawberry fields. Nothing is real and nothing to get hung about strawberry fields forever. Those are the lyrics, as you can tell, to strawberry fields forever. Tell me again that's strictly about an orphanage in Liverpool as advertised. No, it can't be, especially since Strawberry Fields may also be a graveyard. It certainly invokes the imagery of one. I will argue that they are both reflections upon a graveside funeral and a lonely house for orphans in that order. We are given a double meaning, though the lyrics work best when John's invitation is brought into view, that he takes us as a tour guide to the world below where Paul is buried. There are likewise multiple clues to be found in the Strawberry Fields music video. Again, this was the first time when youthful audiences saw the Beatles with post-accident Paul. You will have to search them out for yourself. Here are a couple to look, at, uh, look for, though. In one scene, the camera is strategically placed to make it seem as though Paul has been hit in the head with a car. 
The same occurrence is replayed again for the musical sequence in I Am the Walrus. Also, a piano is strung to a tree with a hanging traffic light, thereby directing our subconscious attention to the scene of an accident. Paul's head once again looks to be decapitated. There is one clue which follows the death of Paul, but which predates Strawberry Fields forever. It can be seen on the cover of A Collection of Beatles Oldies, which was released on the 10th of December 1966 to make up for the lack of new material at Christmas. And many have argued that this was because this was the first Christmas that they didn't come out with a new song. You know, they were disoriented uh, over the death of Paul and they were trying to, you know, come up with something. And Aston Martin can be seen driving towards the head of a man. Its headlights are on reminding us that the head injury, which is about to occur happens at night. Everything about this release is so odd and out of character. I mean, it clearly is. It's just very odd. The death imagery is everywhere in the Beatles catalog. The icing on the cake, however, is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. The first LP of fresh material following Paul's accident or his incident. Keep in mind that the Magical Mystery Tour singles were released later. It's loaded, bro. <laughs> Never mind the fact that 12 noted Freemasons are shown on the cover. Probably every one of them was a spook. Many will tell you that we happen to be observing a graveside funeral, but that's only the half-truth. It's more so a celebration, a resurrection ceremony, and colorful one at that, which is most apparent in the fact that the Beatles are depicted twice. Isn't that interesting? The mop-top crew in black look sad as lifeless wax figures, but then look where their gaze is cast. It is fixed upon the plot of freshly turned dirt inscribed with beetles and red flowers. A trophy can be found between the L and the E in their name and looks like an I. If it is included in the spelling of their name, then we are left with beat lies. The flowers are hyacinth. They are protruding from the grave, as if the life circle continues. Why hyacinth, though? The answer before us can be found in the archives of Greek mythology. Let's see if I can read this. One day, Apollo was teaching him the name of Coits. Uh, they decided to have a friendly competition by taking turns to throw the disc, the discus. Apollo threw first with a strength so great that the discus split the clouds in the sky. Eager to retrieve the discus, Hyacinthus ran between it to catch it. But as it hit the ground, the disc bounced back, hitting Hyacinthus, his head, and wounding him fatally. The Wikipedia reminds us of the tragic death of, of Hyacinthus, gay lover of Apollo, by which the flowers are named. After throwing a disc Discus, which split the clouds in the sky, Hyacinthus proved he was still unskilled in the craft of the game when attempting to retrieve it, as it bounced off the ground and landed upon his head, cracking it wide open. The wound was fatal. Skipping a few lines, we read the following. Uh, the, the, let's see, could not cure the wound inflicted by the fates. When Hyacinthus perished, Apollo wept saying he would have become a mortal and join his lover in his death if he were able to. That being unachievable, Apollo promised that he would always remind himself of Hyacinthus through his song and the music of his lyre. From Hyacinthus' says spoiled blood, he created a flower, the Hyacinth. 
and it on its petals inscribed the words of lamentation, uh, alas. Apollo was capable of remembering uh, hyacinthus through song and music. And with that, we come to the birth of the hyacinth flower, which was said to have been created from the soil where the blood of hyacinth was spilled, much like the funeral possession on Sergeant Pepper. Everything that is written certainly seems to suggest that Paul died, but only if hieroglyphs are chiseled on walls for the exoteric scholar. Greek mythology, as well as mystery school literature, is told in the exact same esoteric manner. Read a little further down. Here is what everyone seems to miss. Hyacinthus was essentially resurrected by Apollo and attained immortality. Something certainly went wrong with Hyacinth, the neophyte, but he was resurrected as an immortal. Secret society stuff. There is more to the story as well. Th uh, Thamyris, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, was a Thracian singer and is notable for reportedly being a gay lover of Hyacinth before Apollo, and thus noted to have been the first male to have loved another male in Greek mythology. It is not the songs of Thracian, however, who won the love of Apollo, but Hyacinthus. Seems like a lot was going on between Paul and John and their craving for the gods. Paul was chosen, but in a little while, so with John. Getting back to the patch of earth, it is Shiva, a symbol of death and resurrection, whom we see with two outstretched arms. One is pointing to the Beatles in black, the other to the musical masters. The number five can be seen written in red flowers to the left of their band name, hinting at the swap of a person, whereas the yellow flower underneath appeared to depict a left-handed bassist guitar. Who was the bassist but left-handed Paul? But then look who has resurrected in the middle. Yes, it is John, Ringo, Paul, and George in the flesh. Pay attention as to who is truly resurrected in the band, though. A hand is pronounced over the head of Paul McCartney's head, indicating a blessing. The others are huddled around him. Among all four bandmates, McCartney is the only one not holding a golden instrument. His is black, indicating death. And then there is the matter of the drum skin. Placing a straight-edge mirror uh, flat against the middle of the drum kit reveals the following message. Um, maybe you could read that for yourself. But it says, like, the number one, uh, then the spelling one, the number one, X, H, E, arrow, die the date of his death. And where is the arrow pointing but to Paul? The statue without a torso looks a lot like Nikola Tesla. That's just a side note, though. To the right of him is a television uh, turned off, indicating a media blackout. To the right of the television is a Shirley Temple doll. She sits upon an old woman whom some have suspected is a corpse. Imprinted on Temple's sweater are the words, Welcome the Rolling Stones. Pressed against her legs is the model of an Aston Martin, the car driven by Paul during his fatal accident. Its interior is red, indicating blood. Even more telling is the bloodstained driving glove which the old woman is wearing. But then notice the opening between the Shirley Temple doll and the wax model Diana Doors. The fern forms two tusks, prompting us to the image of a walrus. It's a doorway, by the way. Both Shirley Temple and Diana Doors are used as stand-ins for pillars of Freemasonry. Even their names suggest Masonic Temple Doors. The path between, in case you didn't know, is immortality. 
The back cover of Sgt. Pepper isn't nearly so detailed visually, but it's just as telling. Do you remember that this was the first LP in rock history to contain printed lyrics? It is in those lyrics that the world was introduced to Billy Shears. In this way, the Beatles labor as a mirror for his fictional band. Once again, Paul is visually disproportionate from his band members with his back turned to the camera. It's almost as if we're staring into his looking glass image, something which directs us not to Lewis Carroll's literature so much as Monarch Butterfly. The Beatles are telling us of a split psyche. McCartney has successfully dislocated himself from the Alice peeping into the rabbit hole above, but the Alice figure he has become below. He has journeyed through the mirror into the land of the looking glass. In Ozian terms, he has transformed from Dorothy to Ozma. Billy Shears wrote Sergeant Pepper. Before the album comes to a swift and stunning close, we listen in as John reads the morning paper in A Day in the Life and quips, I saw the photograph. He blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. A crowd of people stood and stared. They'd seen his face before. Nobody was really sure if he was from the House of Lords. Most people seem to find the parallel between Paul McCartney's reported car wreck and John's melancholy words, and to be the most disturbing uh, to be the most disturbing part of the song. I, on the other hand, have always been both intrigued and bothered by the sudden tonal shift when McCartney himself interrupts Lennon's musings with news of his own personal and seemingly meaningless existence. McCartney sings, Woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head, found my way downstairs and drank a cup, and looking up I noticed I was late, found my coat and grabbed my hat, made the bus in seconds flat. Found my way upstairs and had a smoke, and somebody smoke, uh, spoke, and I went into a dream. Is McCartney, or rather his William Campbell doppelganger, telling us of his own experiences leading up to and immediately after Paul's car wreck? On one hand, Campbell may have been going about his own measly existence when Intel selected him as McCartney's physical replacement, that is, in a Paul is dead scenario. Others might claim it is McCartney's final hours. But the somebody who spoke can just as easily be read as McCartney's MK Ultra controller. The dream he enters is, is his other psyche. Other curiosities continue in a day in the life. There are 24 counts to the end of the song, which just so happens to line up with how old McCartney was on the day of his mortal wreck. If you're as intimately familiar with the song as I am, then you can hear it even now. George Martin leads the orchestra. The chorus builds and builds quickly, seemingly escalating in one unifying voice, and then the crash happens. Paul McCartney is dead. The clues don't, certainly don't end there. Playing the record backwards was encouraged rather immediately upon its release in 1967. Consider what me uh, messages might be relayed in its Crowleyan approach to magic. When played in reverse, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band reprise claims the following words i know that he's dead really really dead paul is dead fellas bring him back bring him back take it to the fans for your answer again i will ask do you really believe the beatles were succumbing to the insanely disciplined measures of crowley's ceremonial magic in hopes of relaying a desperate message to their fan base crowley was intel everybody knows that 
All indications point to a carefully crafted Paul is dead narrative, which went far beyond the incapable drug-fused mind of Lennon, one which was relegated to spook work. If Paul really did die and John, George, and Ringo were conscious of the message being crafted by their controllers, then they would have likely been pushing it out while being held hostage. The far more likely scenario is the MK Ultra program was being pushed out on everybody, but on a subconscious level. And of course, back then, nobody knew what the MK Ultra program was. On June 4th, 2007, Paul McCartney released an album titled Memory Almost Full, in which he sings of his gratitude for everything he's been given. Once again, the Aleister Crowley disciple backtracks the intended spell. He sings, Who is this now? I was William Campbell. Some of you are dead set on your convictions, and I know what you're probably thinking. If you're thinking Paul is dead, no matter how esoteric I take our conversation, then you're dead wrong. I respect you guys, though. This isn't a confession by some Canadian who won a lookalike contest. Rather, William Campbell, who perhaps also played the part of Billy Shears, yet another persona, was ritualistically split from the psyche of Paul McCartney and then played out as an alchemical psychodrama, but on the subconscious level. The only difference with Mark Stacer's split from John Lennon is that the psychodrama was intended on an exoteric level and for the worldwide stage, whereas McCartney's conversion strictly remained within the esoteric. The Beatles were wizards in every sense of the word. The final tip-off came after stumbling upon an article titled Paul is Dead on the Wikipedia, the brunt of which emphasizes how Paul's alleged death among fans has become, quote, the subject of analysis in the fields of sociology, psychology, and communications, unquote. Oh, dear. Roughly translated, if you're putting any credibility to the Paul is Dead conspiracy, hence the very reason you clicked onto this article, then you have psychological issues. There's some gaslighting for you right there. Spooks created Billy Shears as surely as they created the Beatles. They threw breadcrumbs in the way of album art and lyrics from the very get-go. And it's a loaded cow. Because several decades later, they're still milking that tit. Then They then went on to write articles in Rolling Stone and the Wikipedia calling you psychologically imbalanced for, uh, for picking up on the finer details of their psyop. You see how that works? Sometime in 1967, Paul McCartney, or was it Billy Shears, recorded the following words. But the fool on the hill sees the sun going down, and the eyes in his head sees the world spinning round. Excuse my French, but who the, <laughs> who the sheol writes lyrics like that? Certainly, nobody who's drunk the Kool-Aid. The Fool on the Hill was released in November of 1967. We're in the thick of the Cold War. America is pressed to the space race against Soviet Russia, only two years away from the Apollo moon landing hoax, and Beatle Paul is dropping lyrics that openly insinuates you're a fool for believing the Copernican Revolution. Also, you're psychologically ill for noticing. You've just been gaslighted. Before you accuse me of reading Billy Shears, scratch that, Paul McCartney wrong, do you remember that The Who openly spoke of the Copernican Re Revolution hoax only two months beforehand? 
I Can See for Miles was released in September of 1967, and it goes like this. I know you've deceived me. Now, here's a surprise. I know that you have because there's magic in my eyes. I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. Again, I ask who the Sheol writes lyrics like that. Controllers do. It is MK Ultra slave puppets who sing them. In the final months before John Lennon bowed out at the hands of Mark David Chapman via Split Psyche, the former Beatle recorded the following lyrics. People say I'm crazy doing what I'm doing. Well, they give me all kinds of warnings to save me from ruin. When I say that I'm okay, well, they look at me kind of strange. Surely you're not happy now. You no longer play the game. People say I'm lazy, dreaming my life away. Well, they give me all kinds of advice designed to enlighten me. When I tell them that I'm doing fine watching shadows on the wall, that's a, a platonic reference, don't you miss the big time, boy. You're no longer on the ball. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. No longer riding on the merry-go-round. I just had to let it go. Yeah, um, that's interesting. This is precisely what our slave masters do. They dangle the truth right there in front of you, like a block of cheese on a string, because you're a rat in a cage, and they created the maze. Just the other day, Skynet sent me an article which actually read along the lines of, if you see pictures of celebrities everywhere throwing their legion up to Horus, then you've got a psychological problem. Get it? The joke's on you for seeing the obvious. Exactly, that's gaslighting. Speaking of which, if you see McCartney throwing up his legions in, I don't know, say, the picture right in front of you, which derives from a recent issue of GQ, then you're probably psychologically ill for noticing. And I think that concludes our read. So if you made it this far, thank you everybody for listening.